This week, Elizabeth I is born. Catherine Parr is buried in the first funeral of its kind for a royal. The infant Mary is crowned Mary Queen of Scots. William Wallace defeats the English at the Battle of Stirling Bridge and the first submarine is tested on the Thames. And I want you to try and guess when you think that would be and soon I will be able to tell you. Welcome to the latest episode of This Week in British History with me, Philippa Lacey-Brule, where I round up some of the events which happened in This Week in British History. If you love British history, then you are definitely in the right place. So go ahead and hit subscribe so that you get notified every time a new episode goes live. They go live weekly, so if you can't wait that long, please do come and find me on Facebook, Instagram and Pinterest. Our first story this week, and Elizabeth I is born on the 7th of September 1533 at Greenwich Palace. Elizabeth's parents were Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII, and she was fully expected to be a boy. The pre-written announcements for the arrival of a prince had to be hastily doctored with the addition of an S after prince so that it now read princess. The celebratory joust was cancelled and Anne and Henry must have been left wondering if God really was on their side. Now looking back, many consider Elizabeth I to be one of our most successful and popular monarchs. But at the time of her birth, her parents wanted an heir for Henry, a boy. And they had gone through personal upheaval, but obviously the whole country had gone through massive changes to enable Henry VIII to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and marry Anne. Anne had been pregnant at her coronation and had been absolutely sure she was going to be able to give Henry what Catherine couldn't, a son and heir. Not only did the birth of Elizabeth leave Henry and Anne wondering if God was on their side because he hadn't given them the son that they really, they just believed that they were going to have together. It also gave their critics ammunition. Now Henry, we know, was formidable. He was pretty safe because no one was going to touch Henry. Anne, on the other hand, this was dangerous for her. Elizabeth I is the reason I got into history. So I am really happy to announce that we have a second Elizabeth I Experience Tour next year. The first one, I'm afraid, in September is fully booked, but we have a new one in July, which is now open for bookings, where we are going to be following in the footsteps of Elizabeth with historians and experts and fellow history lovers, of course. The places are limited to 20. We do small exclusive tours, but they are really fun. I think Anyone who loves history and comes on a tour is going to have just the most incredible experience. So if you want more details of that, please feel free. Go and have a look at the full itinerary, see who the speakers are. It's in conjunction with Claire Ridgway from the Tudor Society. If you haven't checked out her channel or her podcast, then do. You'll, you'll, you'll be hooked. She is amazing. She is our resident historian, so she's with us the whole time. Also on the 7th of September, 15 years later, in 1548, Catherine Parr, becomes the first royal to have a Protestant funeral service. Catherine Parr was the sixth and final wife of Henry VIII. Henry had died in January 1547. Barely a month later, Catherine had married a man she actually loved, Thomas Seymour, who she had loved before Henry VIII had come a knock in, but 
you can't resist you can't not resist you probably could resist but you can't get out of a proposal from Henry VIII so she had married Henry Henry had died and she'd married Thomas Seymour finally he was her fourth husband and she was about to get the happy ending that she deserved she got pregnant for the first time even though this was her fourth marriage her first pregnancy and they moved to well they were at Sudley Castle where she was to give birth she gave birth to a baby daughter Mary who is lost to the records we don't actually know what happened to Mary but sadly Catherine died of complications from childbirth on the 5th of September she was buried at St Mary's Church on the 7th of September now St Mary's Church is a private church so she is actually not only the first royal to have a Protestant funeral service, but she is also the only queen to be buried in a private chapel. Catherine was only in her mid-30s when she died, but her body in a private chapel on a private estate should have been guaranteed some sort of peace. However, no one anticipated the English civil wars. You can read about what happened to Catherine's body and the impact of the civil wars and how she's ended up in the beautiful, thankfully, tomb that she now has resting in peace in St Mary's Church in a blog I've written and I will put the link to it in the notes. You can also visit Sudley Castle with me and Sarah Morris, aka the Tudor Travel Guide, when we are going to be following the progress of Anne Boleyn, uh, who went on progress in the summer 1535 with obviously with Henry <laughs> they went on a royal progress and we're going to be following the Gloucester sheer leg of that progress if you're interested in that again please um, go along to the website there's full details there we're going to head up to Scotland for our next two stories on the 9th of September 1543 Mary Queen of Scots had her coronation at Stirling Castle. She was only nine months old. She had been born the previous December at Lilithgow Palace. Her father, James V, had died when she was only a few days old. But her coronation was no particularly lavish affair, it doesn't appear, although there aren't many details surviving. The ceremony was carried out at the chapel at Stirling Castle by the most senior Catholic cleric, Cardinal David Beaton, Archbishop of St Andrews. A couple of months earlier, in July 1543, a treaty between Henry VIII and Mary's regent, James Hamilton, Earl of Arran, was signed at Greenwich, betrothing Mary to Henry's son, Edward. Arran was pro-English, but when he took the proposal back, or the treaty, back to the Scottish Parliament, it was rejected. Mary's mother, Mary of Guise, favoured an alliance with her native France, as did many in the Scottish Parliament. The following year, Aaron was replaced by the infant Mary's mother, Mary of Guise. The baby Mary was betrothed to the Dauphin of France, and five years later, in 1548, aged only five years old, little Mary set sail for France. She lived at the French court with her husband-to-be, who she married ten years later, on the 24th of April 1558, at Notre Dame in Paris. It's just worked out this week that this is another story with a link to a tour going on next year in the footsteps of Mary, Queen of Scots, is going in June 2021, where myself and Sarah Morris from the Tudor Travel Guide are taking you to Edinburgh and around the Scottish parts of Mary's story. Again, we have some incredible speakers which are yet to be announced, but I know who they are, so look out for the announcement. Uh, and if you're interested or you just want to be nosy and have a look where the, uh, where the tour goes, please have a look on the website. Um, you can see all the tours that are available and you can see the full details of each one. 
Our second story from Scotland this week, the 11th of September 1297, we saw the Battle of Stirling Bridge and William Wallace defeating the English. Back in 1290, Edward I had been asked to arbitrate where there were 13 contenders for the Scottish throne. He had chosen a man called John Balliol. He expected John Balliol to be a bit of a puppet king. He wanted to be overlord of Scotland, like he persuaded the Welsh to be overlord of Wales, persuaded. The way Edward I persuaded people was not how you'd want to be persuaded, but he wanted to do the same with Scotland. He didn't find John Balliol as pliable as he had hoped. Rebellion, if you could call it that, broke out in 1295. The English invaded and defeated the Scottish at the Battle of Dunbar. By 1297, and Edward I is off fighting in France and the Scots see their chance to once again rise against imposed English rule. They were led by Sir William Wallace and Sir William Moray. English authority in the north of Scotland had all but collapsed at this time, but it had left Dundee as an isolated English outpost. The English, under the command of John de Warren, Earl of Surrey, planned to travel via Stirling to Dundee to relieve the beleaguered garrison there. The English army was reported to be bigger than the Scottish army, but apparently not maybe by as large a margin as some reports say. The English were estimated to have, have had 7,000 troops and the Scots 6,000, and the two sides met at Stirling Bridge. Scottish army took advantage of their high position and threw down spears onto the knights trying to cross the bridge. Thousands of English were killed and those yet to cross the bridge didn't. They fled. So it was a victory for William Morris. However, William Murray had been mortally wounded. In 1298, the English forces returned, this time at their head, Edward I again, and William Wallace's army lost at the Battle of Falkirk. William Wallace managed to evade capture and did so for the following seven years, but eventually he was captured and taken to London and tried for treason. Wallace argued he couldn't be tried for treason because he wasn't a subject of Edward I. However, the precedent for this had already been set by Edward back in 1283, when the brother of the Welsh Prince of Wales, Daffid ap Griffith, had been tried for treason. And again, in the video about Daffid, I explain that he was the first person to ever be hung, drawn and quartered in England. And it was a punishment designed particularly for this new crime of rebellion as treason. Let's end on a more fun story. The 12th of September and a submarine was tested on the Thames in London. Now, did you have a guess as to what year you thought this might be? Well, the test was taken uh, in front of James I of England, James VI of Scotland, on the Thames, along with thousands of other people. So that should give you some idea of at least a century. Well, the year was 1624. That's much earlier than I would have ever guessed. The brains behind this project was a Dutch engineer and inventor, Cornelius Jacobson Drebbel. He'd built his first navigable submarine in 1620 while working for the English Navy. The submarine was a wooden-framed, leather-covered, steerable vessel. In the four years between 1620 and 1624, Jebel had managed to design another two submarines based on his first design from 1620, each time being slightly bigger. The version in 1624 that was tested on the Thames could take 16 people, and it was powered by six oars. The submarine stayed submerged for three hours, travelling from Greenwich to Westminster and back. It cruised at depth of between 12 and 15 feet, which is around about 4 to 5 metres. 
Jebel even took James on board to do a test dive beneath the Thames, making James the first monarch ever to travel underwater. Thank you for joining me this week. Please give it a thumbs up, comment and share the video. It helps to spread the word to other history lovers. Take care, have fun.